Welcome back to A Christian and a Buddhist Walk Into a Bar. My name is Jamal and I am a Buddhist. I'm Jacob and I am a Christian. I am Yong and I'm a Buddhist. And Hang on, who's, who's who, this? Who's the third guy? Where did he come from? No, uh, that's right, dear listeners. We have our very, very first guest on the show. Um, it's Yong Kui Kuo, who is a, uh, a Buddhist, as you said, Yong. Um, and yeah, thanks, thanks for being here with us. Uh, thank you for inviting me. Yes. Um, so, so Yong, uh, Yong has been a Buddhist for how many years now? Was it? Uh, I, I started to be interested in Buddhism back in '96. Before okay, that, yes. when I was at university, I was totally abhorrent at uh, how people treat the monks. They were bowing to them and things like that. I was a political activist in the university then, and the Buddhist society at the University of New South Wales got a monk over and they, uh, the people were bowing to the monk and say, wow, this is so old style. And I was like, so you're an monk. anti-Buddhist. You're an anti-Buddhist for a while and then became I was Buddhist. anti-Buddhist in yeah. the beginning. I was more of an environmentalist and a, mm-hmm. a third world political economy kind of activist uh, in those days. And I, I thought this is uh, not on, you know, it's only the male chauvinist thing and things like that. Yeah. So, well, and and look look at where you've come. You're you're now on a podcast as the honorary second Buddhist, and you know look at that. I'm outnumbered. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we've finally managed to outnumber Jacob. I I feel like our listenership is entirely Christian, uh, and so so we, we've finally managed to get more Buddhists on than Christians, and I'm I'm well pleased. Um, okay. So um, the the structure of this episode um we we have Yong on. Um, as somebody who, uh, for for quite a while, actually lived as a monk, and we can go into that story uh, in just a little bit. But um, you know, I guess maybe the way that we might want to run this this episode, uh, this is our first episode with a guest, so please forgive us for not knowing how to how to handle guests and being stuck in our own conversations. But um, we might uh, go through your story, Yong, about about your your history and and your engagement with Buddhism, and then. Uh, we can ask some questions. I, th- I imagine Jacob's going to have a, have a lot of questions, uh, and, and I should ask at this point as well. I've been watching a lot of uh, Would I Lie to You, the, yeah. the British TV show with, with David Mitchell on it, uh, and and so I think, well, what is your relationship to Jamal, Yong, uh, to Yong Jamal? Oh. Even I put, I put that the wrong way. I'm asking either of you can answer whatever. You, <laughs> Jamal can answer that. You, 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 you've butchered that, but yes. Um, for full disclosure, Yong is my father. Uh, and so uh, he, uh, you, you, you may have heard me reference my father as a Buddhist or various things. And if you notice any similarities in that story, that's because Yong is my father <laughs> um, and, and has probably had a larger influence on my Buddhist life than most, than most other people, maybe except for Ajahn Brahm. That's pretty yeah. esteemed company. It is. It is. To be um, well, and uh, John Brahm, I'm sure, will make an appearance in the story. But um, <laughs> why don't we kick this off, Yong, with, I guess, so you started in, you said, 96 as a Buddhist. You were an anti-Buddhist uh, university activist. Uh, take us from there. What happened? Well, back in uh, 96, uh, I, I kind of like uh, lost access to, to my, my two boys, uh, Jamal and Johnny. And uh, when I was uh, having that, uh, in that predicament, I started to feel very angry and frustrated, even though I have, at that point in time, I'm really practicing shiatsu massage, which has got a, a lot of traditional Chinese medicine perspectives to the world. Mm-hmm. And uh, together with my background as a political environmental activist, and I also done some martial arts. And uh, at that stage when I didn't get 
a chance to see my two boys, I was uh, using the punching bag to relieve my anger. <laughs> so uh, at some stage, I also gone to gambling because uh, being a Chinese, uh, there's a lot of gambling in the blood. And uh, I was just working and gambling, martial arts, and uh, doing all this stuff, which I think it's a waste of energy. After a while, I happened to bump into a Buddhist monk, uh, Venerable Sujiva. He came from Malaysia. And I, as I said before that, when I saw the monk in the, the monastery, I'm not in the university, I was really abhorred at how people bow to the monk and being uh, chauvinistic uh, and all stuff, male chauvinist uh, behavior. That was my perspective as an activist. And when I met him, he explained it in a different context in terms of uh, life is suffering and the suffering that I have gone through now is uh, awakening for me to realize that I have to do something more to resolve my suffering instead of blaming the outside world. So I happened to meet him at the Buddhist library down in Camberdown, Sydney, back in 96. And I immediately uh, got um, attracted to this idea of learning to resolve your suffering internally through meditation and things like that. Because I've already done shiatsu massage, yoga, qigong, and martial arts, and that still didn't resolve my internal anger and frustration. Uh, so in that context, I, I starting to... Uh, totally embrace this idea, okay, I know that meditation has got something more in there, and I believe that it should sort out my uh, emotional issues at that point where I didn't get a chance to see my children. So that was the starting point. I was very lucky to bump into uh, this venerable who was visiting from Malaysia. Yeah, and so so after after that, um, you you traveled overseas for a while to, yep. to engage? Yep. after that, I packed up. And I say, look, there's no point for me to be around here. I, I, I was given an opportunity to study acupuncture and UTS. I got an interview and uh, and then I said, look, there's no point. I'm angry and frustrated with this whole world uh, because I'm really angry and frustrated in my activist days in, in, as an environmentalist. So I packed up and I say, look, I'm going to go and try to meditate in Kota Tinggi, Malaysia with Venerable Sujiva. And at that time, he was teaching the Mahasi method. Mahasi method is very much Burmese-based. There are many different meditation methods uh, that uh, are teach that people are teaching. Well, most of you would heard of uh, Goenka method, uh, which is the uh, the McDonald's of meditation. Uh, that's the, the mindfulness. The, the, the 10-day uh, silent retreats that lots of people go right. on. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Yes, in, in, in uh, Blackheath and, and this place. I, I, I wouldn't put it down as McDonald's, but I'm just saying as in it's all over the world in many mm -hmm. capital cities where you have uh, the 10-day Vipassana uh, meditation. So the, the different uh, groups has got different uh, meditation techniques. Yeah, they, they all lump into, like you have the, uh, the uh, Tibetan, the Vajrayana, and you have the Tarawada, which is very much Burmese and Thai and Sri Lankan tradition, and then you have Zen, Chinese Chan tradition. And when you, within the Burmese tradition, there are also different meditation methods that you adhere to. So the Mahasi method I started with, with Venerable Sujiva in Kota Tinggi for about two or three months. And uh, I kind of like uh, quite decided in those days uh, that I should 
pursue my meditation to resolve my emotional issues. So, but then when I was uh, back there, I I went back to Kuala Lumpur and meet some friends, and I, I turned up working for Swaram, which is a human rights uh, organization, for about half a year or five months to half a year. But I realized that tossing between the full-on political activists in Malaysia at that time uh, is quite dangerous. Being a political activist, uh, and my 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 three months meditation with Renbos Sujiva it becomes very clear to me I do not want to prolong my internal suffering by being constantly angry and frustrated with the world. So I, after working five months as a human rights activist in a, a non-government organization in Malaysia called SWAM, I took off to Burma and off I go. I, I haven't actually decided where to go. I, I thought, well, since I don't know much about Buddhism at that time, I thought, well, karma would tell me. So I was traveling in Burma uh, from from uh, from the moment I landed in Rangoon, Yangon. I was uh, traveling up to Tongji, which is towards the border of China. And I keep on bumping people telling me, oh, you should go to this monastery called Pa'at in, in the Malamin, which is the southern part of Burma. I even end up in Tongji, which is the north uh, eastern side of uh, Burma, which is close to, uh, to China, a French monk. Uh, funny enough, that uh, the French monk was having a rest there. He was actually from that monastery in Bao. So I thought, well, this is clear now. Everywhere I go, uh, I've got so many messages saying that I should try this Pao method instead of the Mahasi method. And the Mahasi method, basically they're observing the breath by the rise and fall of the tummy and the stomach, where Pao method, they look into the breath through the nostril. But at the end of the day, when I'm starting to uh, spend a long time in, 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 in the meditation uh, tradition, I start to realize that it, it is also uh, inclusive of your lifestyle that would make the difference in, in, in changes in, in your perspective or your worldview. So it's not just the meditation, but it was the lifestyle that that, right. that was the realization you came to. Yeah, the lifestyle, which I, I, I think I heard some of it, you have talked before on the echo path. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the 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 precepts, which is the same as the commandment, almost the same. And uh, to me, uh, there was this uh, experience where I was me meditating in Burma. I had this uh, what they call light bulb moment. I, I was brought up in Malaysia, in a Muslim country. I used to really hate the Muslim prayer, call for prayer, loudspeaker, and all stuff. Mm. And we used to like to watch movies. And then the movie was stuck at the time of call for prayer. <laughs> There's no not much advertising, but the call for prayer they'll stop, and we were so frustrated with it. So there is a culture who are non-Muslim doesn't like that. So when I was meditating for a long time, uh, probably six to seven months in Burma, there's also some Muslim prayer, Muslim population there. And in one morning when I was meditating deeply, the call for prayer of Muslim uh, loudspeaker came out, and I felt really ecstatic, really, really ecstatic. And at that moment, I realized that all religions are the same. We're trying to uh, seek some kind of uh, spiritual uh, happiness, internal happiness in us. And and, and I, we can talk a little bit more about those similarities. I, I mean, I don't read a lot of Christianity or, or is, uh, Islamic texts. I'm actually not much of a reader. I, I, I have been practicing meditation for a while. Even when I practice in Burma, 
in Thailand, there's not much of a reading of the text. It's more like practicing meditation, and that was it. Yeah. So it, it reminds me just a little bit of a um, one of the things that I think is in the Sikh scriptures that there is no Muslim, there is no um, Hindu, like that. Your your experience reminds me of that, Yong. Yeah. Well, when when that speaker of the call for prayer came out, I was really really heightened aesthetic kind of feeling. Because to me, I interpret it that way. When one have a busy lifestyle as a, a teenager and a young boy in Malaysia, there's a lot of uh, encultured internal frustration against the Muslims. So it has been brainwashed within the culture. And when I meditated for many months, those brainwash are slowly sieved off. The peace has uh, surface much more than the the, uh, the internal chatter because what what our daily life do in our I mean in, in, as a human being is we have this constant internal chatter that's been brainwashed through our parents and the society that um, tell us this is right that's wrong and and that's good and bad so this right or wrong good and bad has been very much uh, programmed you can call it in a modern computer language, pre-programmed through our upbringing. And to me, for the many months in Burma, it was very strict meditation, five sessions a day, one and a half hour session, every sitting and walking meditation in between and breakfast and lunch, and that would be it. So for six to seven months when I'm having that lots of bliss, uh, even my master say, your ex-wife is your teacher. <laughs> so I, I'm starting to forgive whatever my ex-wife did. I, I understand mm. that we all have suffering. So we, instead of uh, punching bags and things like that, I, I turn around saying, yeah, she's giving me this time, an opportunity to discover this other side of humanity that we seldom look into, the, the peaceful uh, side where... Once the peace has settled down, they always uh, have the simile of when you meditate deeply, the ripples in the pond have settled, you can see the, the, the reflection of the moon. So when, when you meditated for a while, all the brainwashing that I've been brought up hating and not liking Islam and things like that suddenly has uh, kind of like shredded off. And then that call for prayer itself is a a help or is a, a push for me to get into a deeper meditation. So it is a very strange feeling when I had that experience. I started to realize that, yeah, it's true. Even the Gogorian chant or the call for Islam, a Muslim call for prayer or the, uh, the uh, hymns and things like that, those are breath work, breath work that uh, kind of like uh, indicates that we're alive and uh, the more breathwork we do, the more we listen to this tone and, and sound, we get calmer and more peaceful. And then we, when we have a lot of peace is where we wash away all the, all the pre-brainwashing that we've been brought up with, then we can see things as it is. So the Muslim prayer is beautiful, aesthetically beautiful. And from that day onwards, I realized that there's so much similarity there. So whenever I saw something like the Muslim prayer bowing down, it's almost like a sun salutation and bowing down in Christianity is more like humbling yourself. There's a lot of bowing in Buddhism, bowing to the master, bowing down to the Buddhist statue. A lot of people might think that oh, you are 
worship uh, idol worship and things like that. It, it is more like an act of humbling yourself. Mm-hmm. Because to me, uh, when I was meditating, there's so much bowing that you really starting to realize that you are you are not the center of the universe. Like in, in the Western philosophical context, Descartes, I, I think therefore I am. So I am the center of the universe now with all this uh, information technology. You're in charge of everything. You click this button, you get this. So there is a sense of uh, being caught up in this, I'm in charge, I'm in control. But in, in, in if you seriously do a long-term meditation uh, retreat, you're starting to realize that your mind is out of your control. It's not under your control. So it's it sounds like, Yong, that this, um, the the monastery where you landed, did, did you say it was out near Tibet? Did I catch that? Uh, it's southern, southern Burma. Southern it's Burma. It's a town called Malamin. They still have horse cards when I say that. But the, the, this experience kind of let you step out of that story and the noise that you're describing um, to kind of not, not to find yourself, like that sounds almost cliche but to to not be constantly bombarded with everything that you had been when you were a, a, an angry activist as you described right. it that it was space where that could stop and you could almost step out of that story into something else that's right from that chapter that i have before i was a monk until i meditated six to seven months down the track the calming of the mind has totally turned my perspective into looking into the positive of everything, even the inability to see my children because of the excess issue with my ex-wife. I also see that as a uh, blessing in disguise. Uh, If that didn't happen, I wouldn't be meditating and find this different perspective in in different worldview. So everything itself it's a, a learning. When you have a calmer state of mind, you look at everything as embracing instead of conflicting. You get what I mean? At so, peace with things. So, so you you did eventually come back to Australia and and stop stop being a, a full time monk. Um, I guess. So, just to clarify for for me, so yes. the the monastery in northern Burma, the town southern of, Burma, southern southern, the town that whose name now escapes me, even though you only told me a moment ago. So you. You stayed there for a while and you ended up becoming a monk in that monastery. I, I, I went there, I became a monk in that monastery for about seven months mm-hmm. because of the uh, the food is very unhygienic. It, it's almost like uh, Malaysia back in the 70s or 60s. You know, uh, People were still on horse cart and things like mm-hmm. that. Yes. Uh, and and, and uh, I mean, I'm not talking in the context of putting it down, but I really enjoy those kind of a slow pace of things. But the, the, the all the foreign monks has got dysentery and mm-hmm. jadiasis and diarrhea. So there was a stage there I can't handle it anymore. So I took off and I went to Thailand, northeast Thailand near the Cambodian border. There's a monastery called Wat Pananacha. Wat Pananacha is a very interesting uh uh, monastery, Wat Pananchat means international monastery. It only takes all foreigners. So when I was there, there were foreigners from Israel, from America, Canada, from all over the world. And it, this is the Ajahn Chah tradition in Wat Pananchat. That's back in 1998, I remember. Now, they are much 
stricter because that tradition, you only have one meal a day. <laughs> that is even much tougher. And, and in, in that meditation uh, period when I was there, I started to discover a lot of things about how your mind works. The mind is almost like the fuel burner, uh, the consumption of fuel. If you're a restless person, there were times when you're restless, you're thinking about home or kids or whatever, what to do with your life. You get hungry because you only have one meal. Mm-hmm. But there were times where you actually meditated deeply. You don't feel hungry. So there's many, basically meditation to me is a uh, personal uh, psychology, a personal uh, data correction on your personal psychology where you, you've done thousands of hours of uh, meditation. You're starting to wise up into how your mind works. Yeah. Mm. All these bowing things and putting on the monk's robe to me, it's just a affirmation on your commitment to that lifestyle. And uh, because a lot of people, to me, like even if you're Muslim, you have to wear the skull cap and beard and things like that. To me, when I look at it in that context, I'm a Christian priest or whatever, it is more like uh, giving you the security you are in a group. So you're okay. Yeah, mm-hmm. you a mental security that you're in the group. So I don't look at that monk's robe as, you know, as in a, well, I'm doing all this bowing for tradition. It's more like giving me the security that I, I can practice deeply how the tradition has gone. Yeah. And that to me, the, the Tarawada Buddhist tradition and although some other Zen tradition have got a lot of meditation in there. And that meditation is almost like a personal self-help psychology data collecting, uh, process that you go through. So the, the more hours you put in, the more you're starting to understand how it works. Like in, in Thailand, it's really rough when it's only one meal a day. If you have very good meditation, you don't even feel hungry. But if you don't have a good meditation, you will be really starving. But you only had about 10 o'clock meal and that was it. So it is a internal feedback loop for you to understand, okay, if you don't want to be starving, work harder to get into a, a deep meditation. Yeah, the kind of a wisdom that's going to develop, and then you're starting to wise up and say, "Yeah, actually, that's the energy that's burning. My, when my mind is busy, it's burning the fuel of my body, and I'm getting hungrier because my mind is so busy about worrying about this and that." On the other hand, there will be some sessions. Of course, in all meditation. Uh, in all sitting meditation, let's say you go to a, a thousand hour sitting med- meditation, there will be 60-70% of them you don't feel like you're getting anywhere. It's just busy and stressful and pain here and there. And there will be probably 20% of the session you get really, really ecstatic and, and, and deeply uh, at ease. Yeah, all the pains are gone and things like that. And this data collection is wising, giving you the wisdom to, to understand about how the mind works and how the body works. Were there people at the, the international monastery in Thailand, Yong, who um, kind of couldn't hack the one meal a day part and would you know be there for a week or two and go, no, this is too much, I'm out? Yeah. Yeah. Of course. I, I even left uh, after, after a few months because... You, you will listen to your chatter and say, this is not on. You know, I, I know a lot about traditional Chinese medicine. Uh, one meal a day is definitely going to stuff up your spleen and your stomach and, and it's not going to be good for the long term. 
and you still hold on to the view. But then there are good sessions of meditation tell you that uh, it's not true, that view is not correct. So you, there's a lot of feedback loop for you to explore. So there are a lot of people that come and go. And of course, being a monk or a nun is not a compulsor, compulsory act. You, you can leave mm. and you can disrobe any time you want. Very different and, and to Christian monks and nuns. You know, oh, you, you, you are, are stuck, yeah. Jacob, aren't you? you, are, you, you <laughs> I'm a Protestant. I'm fine. You're fine. I'm fine. Okay, yeah. <laughs> but well, but it's very different to what most you're... of us in the West think about when we think about monks and nuns. It's polite. No, it's not. In, uh, in, in, in a lot of the tradition culture in Thailand and things like that, they did it because it's just a tradition. They don't understand the tradition. And uh, they do it because it's being told before you, before you turn eight or before you get married. You have to go and meditate. It doesn't matter if it's one month or, or two months, mm. just because you want to satisfy the parents' tradition. Mm-hmm. But uh, to dwell deeply into it, you're starting to realize that it's just a period of uh, reflection, yeah? a period of learning uh, discipline and things like that. Actually, so, did, you know, until, did you know about that, Jacob? The the Thai practice of like monk service is kind of like military service, where you you have to go and do it for a certain. No, I don't of time. think I did. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It's like it's a, so. You, so you must be a monk for a little while. There's no set time, though, right, Yong? No set time. I mean, for me, the Burmese are is the same with the Thai. They they, they came. Uh, they came. You want to ordain? Okay. I told the master, look, most likely I'll take half a year to one year. Yeah, it's fine. But at the end, I end up two more than two years. So it, it, you you suddenly discover something that is much more than you think. I don't think I can handle this because your, your preconception is always the one that's blocking you from progressing further. But when you sit through it, you're starting to know, hey, there's a whole universe out there to be discovered where I know that if I go back to a busy lifestyle, I would never have this chance. Well, so, so speaking of that, you, you did eventually go back to Australia and back to a busy lifestyle and started a business right. and all these things. I mean, how did you find that transition back? Like how, how quickly did the chatter of your mind return after kind of spending so much time clearing it out? I remember when I, when I came back, it was Y2K. I mean, I didn't even know that Lady Diana died or I heard about Indonesia uh, Suhat was gone and all that stuff. But I mean, when you're there, you don't watch the news. You don't listen to anything. Mm. But when I came back, I was uh, I only had an air ticket. And then I the, the next day, because I used to drive taxi in my university days, uh, the next day I went to the taxi department, got my li- taxi license back, and I started driving taxi for the uh, Y2K. So a very quick way to catch up on news. Yeah, yeah. And then we within within... We, well, when I was driving taxi, I remember going through the Sydney Harbour Bridge. I'm feeling very light and very relaxed and things like that. And just within a few days, it's all gone. <laughs> so, so, so how many years did it take you to develop that lightness? Just a few days. Yeah, so, so, so three years' work uh, undone in a few days. I, I, remember, uh, I remember when you take the taxi license, you also have to go for a medical checkup. Right? This doctor was saying, wow, your blood pressure is really good, you know. Yeah, I've been meditating for a while. <laughs> because before you get your license, you need all the medical checkup. Yeah. So that was a compliment from the doctor. Well, I mean, that's good then. Uh, but I say I've been meditating for the last two and a half years. And there, there's an old saying, you, you can be good for, for two years and then within two days, it's all, 
out of the window. <laughs> but of course, it's not all out of the window as per se, but you, you have still kept a lot of wisdom and things that you've learned internally and you're constantly learning. So when I come back to Sydney, I, I, I was uh, given an opportunity to see my kids and Jamal and Johnny is in Melbourne. So I moved to Melbourne uh, as soon as I got enough money. Uh, when I moved to Melbourne, I started to see the kids and I started to uh, also start driving taxi there and also transitioning towards working as a yoga instructor because I know you see, when you meditate for two and a half, you know exactly what you want to do with your life. I don't want to drive taxi, but driving taxi is just a transition period for me to settle things. I remember I moved to Noble Park. At that time, I was given chance to see the kids every second week. And then I, I, I have the opportunity. I set up some yoga classes in some community center, in the Scouts Hall in Fairfield, and work in Brunswick City Bath. And then by the time I established myself with Qigong and yoga, people start to get to know me, then I totally dropped the taxi. So from that time onward, from 2000 onward, I started to work with a community group. I, I went, I started with the Aboriginal elders in East Brunswick back in 2001. I spent 18 years there. Uh, and then I worked with uh, prisons, juvenile prison, high security prisons, um, Girls, juvenile prisons, and I also work with re rehab center. So I'm I'm still with the Odyssey House Rehab Center mm. and uh, another place in Woodend called uh, Arrow Health. And I do some classes at uh, Montmorency Community Center, Monty Hub. So from 2000 until now, I've been just doing yoga, massage work, and qigong classes. I'm curious, Yong. You said that um, like it it took kind of two days for all of the voices in the chatter to come back. I, I have two questions about that. The, f the first is, um, was it different coming back from before you left? Like you talked about how um, before you left UNSW, you, you took it all out on the punching bag and, and that was the emotional release. Did you find that you had different ways of kind of coping with a bad situation or anger or whatever it might have been when you came back? Definitely. That's the first question. And yep. the second question is, is that different as well, the amount of chatter you get as a taxi driver compared to being a yoga instructor or is it kind of just being in a Western city like Melbourne, there's just going to be chatter either way? It's going to be chatter either way, whether you're a yoga instructor or a taxi driver. But because you have done two and a half years of serious training, you know to come home, you know to go back to the routine that will bring your mind down. Yeah. Like when I was driving taxi, I feel my lower back is a bit painful. It's a 12-hour shift taxi in Sydney. And when I was driving taxi, as you know that the job is here and there, so you you're a bit tired, you want to stretch out, so I'll just park the taxi in the uh, taxi stand in the airport while mm -hmm. you're waiting for the plane to arrive. So while you're waiting for the plane to arrive, you slowly crawl your way to the front. I'll just come up from the car, put my legs under the car and do the stretching and do all the stretching to loosen up the back so there is a uh, self-care, automatic self-care 
ingrained uh, understanding of what you need to do to release this and that. Because I, I have that background of martial arts, yoga, qigong, and the meditation art when I came back to drive taxi in year 2000. Um, so whenever I have this lower back pain, I wouldn't bother going around looking for more customers. I would just drive to the airport and just park it there and slowly mm-hmm. crawl your way to the queue and jump up of the car, do a lot of stretching. So some taxi drivers are looking at me thinking I'm crazy, but because you're so confident that this is how it works. Yeah. So I don't have many serious uh, physical ailments and things like that. And I can find a lot of relief just by sitting in the taxi rank and doing all the stretching and meditation. So those couple of years um, that you had away, the three years, it meant that when you came back, even though there's all the chatter, you're you're better equipped to deal with it on a day to day basis, even if yes. you're not, even if you don't have the same deep calm that you had in the monastery. That's right. You, the the misunderstanding on people in in the world of meditation is is a switch, and this is how the delusion of the mind works in, in Buddhist tradition or even in Hindu, the Eastern tradition, Taoism, Hinduism, and Buddhism, that the the ego is a, a delusion or an illusion, depending on how you define it. So. The, the delusion that we're caught up in the modern world now with the endemic of depression and self-harm and things like that, it, it is we are frustrated with we're not being able to control it. But with all the technology that we have, it is telling us that we can control this. You can switch it on, you can switch it off. We can do this, we buy this, you click the button, you get this. So there is a, a deeper delusion that where the technology has brought us further. Mm-hmm. So when you look at the other end of the uh, culture where they tell you that your ego is helping a delusion or an illusion, your life journey is really about unraveling that. So if you get caught up in that cycle of, I'm caught up with this anger with this person, you don't go, uh, like America, go and shoot everybody out because you, 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 you're angry with them. They understanding that you, your ego itself is an illusion or delusion, then you have to work on yourself to look at it at another angle. So to me, it is a a very uh, passive uh, way of resolving your issues with the outside world. So at the end of the day, it comes from you, how you reflect your reaction to the world. It comes from how you're being brainwashed by the society and by your inner chatter. And by the uh, whatever Facebook page or YouTube channel that you follow, and, and that would drum that belief system that you have. And if you want to unravel that, you can't switch it up. If you have been feeding with this amount of information, you you really need to un- unlock it by doing some either the yoga stretching or meditation to calm your mind down, so that you see a another angle to what your delusion is. You, you mentioned a cycle, Yong, and it reminds me of this time a Christian and a Buddhist walked into a bar. Um, and there were actually two Buddhists walking into this bar. Uh, and they walked in and they, um, they, 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 they was, a, was a guy sitting at the bar and he was like, you know, uh, doing papers to, to, to create a business and file a, a business uh, name and that kind of thing. And they walked in and they asked him and they said, oh, like, you know, what business are you filing? He's like, oh, I have the best business idea, idea ever. It's a, uh, it's a gravestone business but only for buddhists 
And they're like, oh, how do you have a gravestone business only for Buddhists? It's like, well, I make so much money. I just get the gravestones. I don't need mm-hmm. to carve anything on them. I just put them there and then I put a little sign on there saying back soon. And then that's <laughs> all it is. Okay. Well, look, uh, unfortunately, that is all we have time for for this episode, Yong. But look, if you are, if you uh, would be so kind, we'd love to have you stick around for another episode and, um, and we can keep the conversation going. I, I'm looking at Jacob and Jacob has like, 50 million more questions that he wants to ask <laughs> So you. many more questions that we could even do in another half an hour episode. <laughs> yeah, so, so, so we, will, we will come back to you with, with part two of, uh, of the episode with Yong. Um, but thanks so much for, uh, for being on this one. Um, you, you have a business. Uh, what's, what's the name of your business in Melbourne? Grasshopper Yoga Studio. Grasshopper Yoga Studio. So if you want to go and hear more of, of Yong's wisdom he learnt in the in the Burmese monasteries, uh, you know, go to a go to a yoga class at Grasshopper Yoga Studio. Um, and tune in. www.grasshopperyoga.com. You are the one who helped me to set up the domain name. <laughs> that, that's true. I, I, I do know that website quite well. Um, but um, but yeah, uh, dear listeners, please do stick around uh, next week and and to listen to more of to more of what we've got from Yong. If you want more wonderful music, you can Google Kevin McLeod and find his brilliant royalty-free music that we use each week. Thank you for that, Kevin. That is true. And if you have any other guests you'd like us to bring on or anything else, you can email us at christianbuddhistbar at gmail.com. We'll see you next week for part two.